Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. Until somewhat recently, autobiographical writing was a practice almost entirely confined to those with wealth and influence. Their accounts of the significant events in which they participated have provided important insights for historians. But the lack of similar stories from those lower in the social order makes it much more challenging for scholars to reconstruct the perspectives and attitudes of the common people. A rare exception to this is the personal chronicle of Sebastian Fischer, a 16th century German cobbler who not only recorded events in his daily life, but also offered reflections on the political and cultural changes that he observed. Even more remarkable, however, is what Fisher shared about his experience of hearing loss and his struggles to navigate life as a deaf person in the 16th century. Our guest today is Jacob Baum, Associate Professor of History at Texas Tech University, where his research focuses on late medieval and early modern European history, particularly in the German-speaking world. As a fellow this year, Jacob has been working on a new book examining Sebastian Fischer's story and what it reveals about living with disability in 16th century Europe. Welcome, Jacob. Thank you, Robert. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you. So autobiographical writing was typically restricted until the modern times to elites, not artisans. So what does this autobiography reveal that other more common autobiographies in the 16th century wouldn't. The Fisher manuscript in particular um, is just so incredibly rich on so many different subjects. Um, In addition to his uh, hearing loss, which is an extraordinarily rare piece of narrative prose, uh, he talks about um, his experiences in the early Protestant Reformation. His adopted uncle was one of the leaders of the early Protestant movement in the city. And so he had something of a front row seat to the um, social, cultural, religious and political developments in the city and how this new set of religious ideas shaped life in the later 1520s. For example, um, he would regularly kind of attend his uncle's sermons. He notes that he wrote out by hand, he claims to have written out by hand, over a hundred such sermons. Um, So he was, he had a, a uniquely sort of intimate relationship to this early religious movement in the city, but there are many other areas uh, as well. So he is a keen political observer because of the political situation in the 16th century, the importance of Ulm, his home city in particular, um, he had occasion to see the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor in person. And even on one occasion, he reports that he he was given his set of very fancy Cordoban leather boots and he even tried them on. Um, and he made some jokes about how he was a, a, a greasy shoemaker and he was going to befoul the, the emperor's um, boots. So there are a lot of very kind of unusual, interesting, intimate details about daily life as a shoemaker. And then, of course, we also have this other perspective, which is extraordinarily unique, and that is uh, his perspective living life as a deaf man. Right. So he lost his hearing about age 22, and he 
sought medical attention, sought medical help as he was losing his hearing, and but ultimately accepted his deafness as, as kind of divine providence after seeking these various uh, medical cures. How did hearing loss affect his life, really? How did it affect the, the life of a 16th century cobbler? Mm-hmm. And what does his commentary, uh, what does the chronicle reveal about the medical practices and the attitudes toward the human body among 16th century artisans. Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics. It's just absolutely fascinating for so many different reasons. But this portion of the manuscript, and I'll I'll give a little bit of detail on, on kind of the scope of it and what it covers and how he talks about his deafness and, and why that's important. So it's a, a 36 folio leaves. So these are full folio pages, a, a large piece of, of paper, and it covers the process by which he lost his hearing as a journeyman shoemaker. Starting in 1535, when he is on his journeyman's tour. So just a little bit of background on what that means. So in the 16th century, people like Fisher who work a trade are trained in that trade through a variety of steps. So one starts as an apprentice. In Fisher's case, he apprenticed to his father. And uh, he was an apprentice from the late 1520s until 1533, when he leaves to become a journeyman and study with other shoemakers across the southwestern Holy Roman Empire, the political entity we today think of as roughly as Germany, uh, and then parts of Switzerland as well. So while he's on this tour, he begins to notice a ringing in his his right ear that gets progressively worse. It proceeds to uh, total hearing loss in in that ear, and then that's later followed in 1538 by the loss of, of hearing in his other ear. During that time, he is documenting in these 36 leaves that have survived his attempts to regain his hearing loss through a variety of medical procedures. Some of these are extraordinarily painful, uh, involving, you know, the streaming of uh, of very hot liquids uh, into the ear canal, puncturing of the eardrum on, I think, two occasions. And then, of course, a number of batteries of of bloodletting and cupping, which is a kind of less bloody alternative to bloodletting. So this goes on, this, this quest for a cure for his hearing loss goes on until 1542 when um, he comes into contact with a miracle healer who's traveling through Ulm. He's since kind of resettled in his hometown, and his wife advises him to go see this miracle healer. The treatment's unsuccessful, and the healer tells him, well, you know, if I can't cure you, then you're going to remain deaf unless God decides that that's going to change. And at that point, he accepts that he is going to be a deaf man for the remainder of his life. So, why that's important, what that's telling us about the 16th century, how Fisher understands his his impairment in a particularly kind of 16th century way. On the one hand, it's very significant that he's giving us this narrative at the time that it occurs in his life. In the surviving bits of early modern life writing that, that we have, it's typical when we have someone of his social estate to provide a kind of narrative account of one's journeyman's tour, right? The professional achievements that one has on that tour, various experiences one gains to show a kind of transition to masculine 
able-bodied adulthood. So it's highly significant that for Fisher, that narrative is displaced by the narrative of his hearing loss. I think he's trying to tell us something about who he is by framing his journeyman's tour in this particular way. So that's one facet. Another is uh, the language he, he uses to describe his impairment. He never uses the term deaf, although that is a term that's of art that's available to him. In, in 16th century medicine, there is a fairly well-established, robust discourse about what deafness is, uh, and that is even filtering into vernacular source material by the 16th century. Instead, he uses a couple different terms. He, he talks about his difficulties hearing. He says he cannot hear at all. And then he also talks about his deafness as martyrdom, so that as a religious connotation, and as uh, sickness. The German word that he uses, you could kind of translate it as sickness or maybe in this particular case more appropriately as infirmity. So he has this range of significances that I think he's assigning to his hearing impairment. There's, there's a domain in which it affects his professional life, his life as a masculine tradesman. There's a religious significance to his hearing loss, and then there is also a medical significance to it. So he's also a kind of amateur sketch artist and painter, and, and one of the things that you're doing in your project is talking about the 18 illustrations that were previously left out of the manuscript. Are these illustrations kind of a visual compensation for his hearing loss, and, and what did they add to the manuscript? It's a really interesting question, and there's a lot going on in, the, in these illustrations. In particular, there's a set of illustrations that he gleans from pamphlets that are published around the middle of the century depicting various forms of what 16th century people would have called monstrosity. So various forms of uh, embodied differences. And he has a lot, to, a lot of interesting things to say about that. So I think we can say a few things about what's going on here. So on the one hand, I think the fact that he lost his hearing when he did needs to be taken into account. So he loses his hearing over the course of these several years. He returns to Ulm in the late 1530s. He settles down. He's married in late 1541. And then you can tell in the in the manuscript, this is when he begins to really sit down read what seems like a fairly unusual amount for someone of his social estate. And uh, he's also consuming a lot of visual print media at this time. And he's frequently, he describes himself as kind of looking at these images and really pr practicing really hard to copy them down. That's all happening in the 1540s after he's returned to Ulm. Uh, he's working as a shoemaker. But in his spare time, um, he's maybe not doing some of the things that other men in his position would be expected to do. And I think this is an important context. His hearing loss affords him alternative opportunities to cultivate other types of abilities. In his particular case, I think we can think of his illustrations as a kind of early modern version of what uh, deaf studies scholars today would describe as deaf gain. That is a tendency or a cultivated uh, visual acuity that maybe is uh, a little bit sharper than hearing individuals. And I think we see a little bit of this going on here. So there's that context. Now, the some of the particular content that he's dealing with in some of these images is very interesting. And I mentioned 
a moment ago, the, the archive of images of monstrous types of bodies, these um, various forms of uh, wondrous births, kind of strange animals. Uh, in one case, he, he describes uh, a four-legged dove, a, a number of, of very interesting images. In particular, one that really kind of sticks with me that I think about quite a bit is the sketch of an individual he reports to have seen visit the city of Ulm in late 1551, an armless man who gives this sort of performance, this soldierly performance. So he comes to town and um, proceeds to um, play dice, to twirl around a spear on his shoulders, and to manipulate various types of weaponry. And Fisher has all kinds of interesting things to say, in particular about this man's body. He describes the man as having a very beautiful body. He's very attentive to his strength and power. It's interesting that in the context of the wider discussion of monstrosity and embodied differences that's going on in the 16th century, um, normally we don't have access to the response to that discourse by someone like Fisher, who lives himself with a type of embodied difference. It's a nice segue to the next question I want to ask you, which is Sebastian Fisher is in his life sort of navigating ability and disability. And, and I wonder how the definitions of these terms, ability and disability, become more nuanced through your particular project. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a very important insight. You know, we when we think about disability today, uh, we tend to approach it from a medical framework, right? Uh, bodies are functional or not functional. But what disability studies scholars and activists have taught us over the last three and a half decades is that there's no such thing as a, as, as a disability substance or a, a disabledness that you can point to in the body, right? Disability is, is a social or a cultural phenomenon, right? Disability is the creation of obstacles, prejudices, forms of disempowerment by how a community responds to particular types of embodied differences. So in Fisher's case, we get a firsthand view of how he's navigating the particular ways that a deaf body could become disabled in the 16th century. And so there are a couple different things that I think are going on there. And some of them come back to uh, his discussions of his deafness as martyrdom, right? There's a religious context to be taken into account. And of course, the Protestant Reformation is at the center of that. So the Protestant Reformation, you know, we often connect it in popular historical narratives with the advent of printing. But a generation of scholarship now has really clearly demonstrated that printing is an important part of the Reformation, but the world that the Protestant reformers emerged into was still a predominantly oral culture. It's a culture of face-to-face exchange, of word-of-mouth exchange, and that's how people are interacting. And so in this context, the question of whether one can or cannot hear becomes especially important. And so reformers, Martin Luther in particular, and other early reformers following him, um, this is an open question for them, whether or not deaf people 
can, in fact, achieve salvation. They go back to the Pauline dictum uh, in Romans that faith comes through the ears, right? And so that there are all kinds of discussions about whether or not deaf people ultimately can achieve salvation. And so someone like Fisher comes along, this is going to be a concerning thing to him. He's well aware of this discourse. He, he's widely read. Uh, we know for a fact that he, he even owned a copy of one of Luther's texts in which he, Luther is explicitly dealing with this question. So it's certainly on his mind. So I think that context is there when we are trying to sort out how he's presenting himself as a martyr, right? So he needs to show that even though he's lost his hearing, he still he still needs to show that he uh, has a very clear understanding of Christian doctrine, that he's lived what he would consider a kind of moral life according to Christian dictates. He's very careful to present himself in that way because of that context. In conclusion, th- let me ask you, kind of personal question. So what's the attraction of this project? How did you come upon this project? What's your passion for this project? Where did it come from in your life? Well, it originated with my previous research, um, as many of these things do. My first book was about sensory perception in the same time period, in the same part of the world, late 15th, early 16th century Germany. And I finished that book. And as I did, a friend of mine who has also worked with Fisher's story from a different perspective, drew my attention to the manuscript. And I had a look at it. I didn't have a whole lot of time to really digest it. I mentioned it at the end of the book, but the fact that he had lost his hearing really stood out to me because I had just spent the last you know, 10 years working in sensory studies, which is all about sensory ability. It assumes a certain kind of ableness in the subjects that it takes up. Fisher kind of made me think that, well, maybe that is a problem that needs to be addressed a little bit uh, more carefully. And so at that point, I turned into disability studies, began to kind of follow up with what's going on in that field. And I realized that there really, you know, there really isn't a lot of scholarship to this point on the period before 1800. It's difficult to get into that period for a variety of reasons, some particular to how the earlier scholarship on disability history has been written, but a lot of it really has to do with the lack of source material or the difficulty in accessing source material. So that was interesting to me. The other thing that's always interesting to me is the question of how to make the deeper past speak to present concerns. So in Fisher, I found someone who I think provides a, um, a compelling kind of narrative example of how one's daily life could be tied up into larger societal or cultural issues in a period that seems very distant, remote, maybe a little inaccessible to some today, but kind of bring it to a modern audience and make it a little bit more accessible, a little more um, human, if you will. Well, thank you, Jacob Baum, for your discussion of this absolutely fascinating project. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.